ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Consider the health of your portfolio. The first ever mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. These are the companies producing and commercializing vaccines, therapies, and delivery systems based on the revolutionary new world of mRNA technology. The mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show this week. Joining me will be Dave Nottig with ETF Trends. We are going to kick around several interesting topics, including ARK Invest filing for an interval fund last week. Not an ETF, they filed for an interval fund. I have a few thoughts on that. We'll also discuss some new academic research which claims index fund investors are sacrificing real money every year because traders are front-running index rebalances. So if you think about this, obviously the index rules are out there for everyone to see. And there are even sometimes press releases around uh, index changes. And the thought is that by telegraphing trades, index funds are costing investors. And I'll tell you, this is a pretty meaty topic. There's a lot to this. So no better person than Dave to explain whether you should actually care about this. And I also think there are some interesting side stories to this topic as well. So we'll dive into those. And then if we have time, I want to get Dave's thoughts on another index investing topic, which has to do with these violent price moves we saw last week from stocks like Amazon and Facebook and Snap, there's this thought that maybe indexing is causing those to happen. Uh, indexing is blamed for everything now. We'll see what Dave has to say. Also joining me this week will be John Bowman, Executive Vice President of the CAIA Association, the CAIA Association, who offers the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Professional Designation. And obviously with that role, John is extremely well-versed in the alternative investment space overall. He was actually previously a portfolio manager. So we're going to have a conversation around the role alternatives play in a portfolio and how that role might be changing now given the rising interest rate environment. We're also going to talk about whether crypto should be viewed as a viable alternative investment 
And I want to get John's thoughts on alternative ETFs and the democratization of alternatives overall and whether that's a good thing for investors. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Robert Cantwell, founder of Upholdings, who they were actually behind the first ever hedge fund to ETF conversion. That happened back in December 2020. The ETF is the Compound Kings ETF, ticker symbol KNGS, Kings. And the timing here is interesting because this ETF seeks to own growth stocks. And of course, growth stocks have been rather challenged recently, especially the highest growth stocks, the highest beta stocks. So I'm very interested in hearing Robert's take on the uh, current environment. And we'll also discuss his rationale for that hedge fund to uh, ETF conversion. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends. Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, thanks for joining me this week. Oh, I wouldn't miss it. Wouldn't miss it, Nate. You know, it's funny. I feel like I've started every ETF Prime over at least the past two months talking about ARK Invest and probably the past two years. <laughs> so I thought, why stop now, right? ARK is the... Uh, Keep the streak going. Yeah, I, ARK is the ETF gift that keeps on uh, giving just tremendous stories. But look, they did file for this interval fund last week. I do have a few thoughts, but I'm curious, just what was your initial take on this? I mean, it makes a ton of sense in the world, right? I mean, they've been very consistent that they see uh, sort of growth growth stock investing starting all the way at that core idea, you know, their their whole methodology around bringing experts around the table. A lot of time they're talking about technologies, they're talking about companies that don't exist in the public markets yet. So an interval fund lets them play in that market and lets investors play alongside them, right? It allows them to invest in less liquid securities, private placements, private shares, uh, any investor can get in because it's a regular old 40 act fund. So you don't have the gating of something like a, you know, an accredited investor hurdle, but you are in an interval fund and an interval fund is a little bit of a different animal. Most people probably never heard of one or been in one. They're a fantastic tool for precisely this application where you want to invest in something that's a little illiquid, not totally illiquid, not un unloadable, but a little illiquid. Uh, and you want to make that available publicly. Well, the interval fund is basically a closed end fund that allows you to get some liquidity once a quarter. It's a lovely way to, I think, thread the needle on these kinds of exposures. So look, this will hold, to your point, some less liquid securities, private companies, but it will also hold public companies. And I know you saw my tweet last week where I posed this question of whether ARK's experience with the ETF wrapper might dissuade some other active managers from considering going the ETF route moving forward. Just because, again, you can't close an ETF to new money, and so it can be more difficult to manage capacity. We've seen that with ARK over the past two years. Now, you know, I, I look at Kathy Wood. She's been such a champion of the ETF structure going back to when she launched ARK. That was a big founding uh, you know, pillar of her launching ARK Invest. But now launching this interval fund, is that a statement at all on the ETF wrapper? And do you, you know, wonder if ARK might actually be filing for an interval fund at all if the past two years never happened? 
Uh, well, yes, but not for the reasons you're saying. I think the reason that they might be filing for an interval, interval fund now after the last two years is because they have such a big investor base. They have such a big audience now that offering this other kind of investing, this sort of dipping a toe into the water of private markets, being able to take concentrated positions in smaller companies, you can do that in an interval, interval fund. You can't do it in an ETF. I happen to think they've managed it pretty well in the ETF. I don't think there have been big issues, despite the amount of sturm and drang in the headlines, right? People mm-hmm. want to buy things, they go up. People want to sell things, they go down. This isn't rocket science. Um, so I, I feel like they've managed the liquidity exactly like they said they were going to in the ETFs. I think what this is, is them acknowledging they now have a big enough market of, of investors that they can try a few different things. So it doesn't strike me as a, an anti-ETF move in any way. They couldn't run the strategy they're talking about in an ETF. But do you think other, say, boutique active managers who maybe run high active share strategies, very concentrated strategies, and are trafficking in less liquid areas of the market, say small caps, that they might look at the ARC situation and go, you know what, we're not going the ETF route. Do you you think there are managers Uh, like that, or do you think ARC is just such a unique situation? I think ARC is a fairly unique situation. I will tell you, I have talked to some of those boutique managers. Uh, You know, people call me pretty regularly to say, I want to get into the ETF business. I'm going to put on a show in the barn. We're going to get, you know, the pews from the church, put on a show. Um, And and this conversation comes up, right? The issue about capacity has been one we've been talking about for over 20 years, right? So this is an issue, capacity in an exchange-traded vehicle. And I think those types of managers that are running special situations funds, M&A funds, small cap, uh, you know, a bridge, to, bridge to IPO type situations, they're not going to be in an ETF anyway. They already understand how closed-end funds and LLCs and interval funds work. This may be May, maybe put interval funds back on the map for a class of investors. So maybe it opens that door that wasn't there before because ARC has so much marketing power. Uh, but I don't think this is somehow a, a U-turn for the ETF industry for new launches. Before we move on here, for investors who love Kathy Wood's approach and they, they like this idea of, of it being in an interval fund, how accessible are, uh, are these? So I know these are effectively closed-in funds, but they don't trade on an exchange. As you mentioned, you can redeem it at certain intervals. I believe in the uh, prospectus, the, they're saying that they'll conduct quarterly repurchase offers for between 5 and 25% of the fund shares. But I think leaning more towards the 5 side, there's a $1,000 minimum. But how accessible uh, is this to just everyday investors? Uh, you know, look, very much widely accessible. Now, I don't know for a fact whether or not newer brokers that are app-based that are generally leaning on something like Apex Clearing as their back office, I don't know whether they've got the setups in place to make this easy for, say, a brand new Robinhood or a brand new eToro investor or something like that. If you have an account at a traditional broker, whether it's more of a wirehouse situation or a Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, uh, you know, E-Trade type environment, it should be relatively painless to get access. To, I would literally just type an interval fund at the top um, uh, in your search bar. So these are not as weird as people may think they are. They're basically as accessible as any closed-end fund. It'll be interesting just to see what type of assets this fund gets upon launch. I think certainly something to watch. Um, okay, so let's move on. Another topic I wanted to ask you about is this recent report that U.S. index funds are throwing away nearly $4 billion a year in trading costs. And basically, the gist here is that index funds are being front-run because professional traders know exactly when these funds have to rebalance and what they're getting into and what they're getting out of. And the Financial Times had a, a nice piece on this. It was titled, 
Passive ETFs Hit by Billion-Dollar Rebalancing Costs. This was written by uh, Stephen Johnson, and he laid out all of the, uh, the the research here. There's a lot I want to ask you on this, but l- let's just start with how big of an issue do you think this really is? Uh, not is is the short answer. So, uh, the you know every couple of years we end up in this exact situation, and it's basically any time we're trying to mint a new crop of PhDs who discover that ETFs <laughs> are an incredible source of data, uh, which they are. Part of the reason I love the ETF market is because there is so much to play with. There is so much data. So. I always hesitate when I do this because this is a dissertation paper. This is not like something published in the Journal of Index Investing or JPM or something like that. Um, It's by a a young person. I don't actually even know the gender named Sita Lee. I think that that's a woman, but I don't know. Um, I I have nothing against this person. They they have done a lot of very hard work in this paper, and I hope they get their PhD and defend their oral just great. The core of what they're trying to argue, though, is a little weird. What they do is they divide the some 700 and something equity ETFs in the United States into 450 what they call sunshine ETFs, which are those where we can we all know what the rebalance is going to look like, right? The Russell 2000, right? We all know they tell us a month ahead of time. We all know when it's going in. The S&P 500 editions, right? This is pretty well-trod territory for any index investor. So they call all of those sunshine ETFs. And then they take a very unique pool of self-indexed ETFs, which tend to be in like slightly odder corners of the market. They tend not to just be large caps. Some of them are like Schwab 1000, things like that. Um, and then they compare the sort of changes to index methodology and the rebalances implied in that, and then derive some sort of, well, if, if SPY could trade the same way the Schwab 1000 did, they would get X amount more money for trading instead of at the close trading at some other prices. There's so many issues with the methodology of how they got there um, that, that once you get to the actual end of the, you know, end of the chain math, it doesn't really hold up. And it really doesn't understand how any trading actually happens in the market. But I think it's an interesting conversation to have because the broader issue here is very real, which is we have a lot of money that's indexed right now, right? We have a lot of money that's in ETFs, right? It's about 40, 45% of daily dollar volume on the exchange is ETFs. And it's reasonable to sit here and ask questions about, well, that implies that a lot of capital moves around. There's no question that index rebalances move prices. And I wish we could put that to one side and talk about how. And I think the how is is the more interesting question. But let me ask you this. Does that tie into the calculation that the Financial Times laid out? And and I'll walk through this. And I have not back-checked the numbers here. But they said an investor with a $2 million nest egg would lose $29,000 over uh, 30 years from this. And then they get there by saying the price of the stocks and ETF buys rises by 67 basis points on average in the five days prior to the rebalancing and then falls by 20 basis points on average over the next 20 days afterwards. So then they calculate that given the median portfolio turnover rate for U.S. equity ETFs uh, was 16% in 2020, this translates to an average annual cost of nearly 15 basis points. And I'll just give you my quick take on that. And I think this is what you were alluding to before. There's so many moving parts here. And I, I think about 15 basis points over, I mean, this is a 30-year time horizon we're talking about. There's a lot of, a lot of movement. But There's a lot. 
But but yeah. to what you were saying, I mean, there there's no question there is some impact here when when indexing is becoming a bigger part of the market, and you you think about these big rebalances, especially around prominent names. We we can't sit here and say there's no market impact. And. and- and and that's the wrong conversation, right? Of, there are very good economic reasons that when XYZ enters as the 500th company at the bottom of the S&P 500, that XYZ is now a more valuable company. There are things that come along with headline index membership, access to the derivatives market, uh, access to liquidity. Uh, I mean, stocks do change when they enter a large index. We can argue about whether that's good or bad, but let's deal with the real world we're in right now. Yes, when a stock gets added to the S&P 500, a lot of capital heads to that stock. Of course, the price goes up. This should surprise absolutely nobody. Now, the question is, Knowing that indexes are going to rebalance, what would be the optimal way for the index shareholder to experience that change, that change of the 500 stock dropping out and the new stock coming in? What this, what this article and the, more importantly, this 40-page piece of research, which has a lot of data in it, presupposes is that all printed prices are available at all volumes, meaning that that price four days ago, I could have put $20 billion through it, even though only $100 million traded that day. It, it, it doesn't re- reflect the real world. So the capital is going to come into that stock at the bottom. Of course, it's going to go up. The only question is, what's the optimal way for that shareholder? Is it a market on close order on the day of the index? Is it doing a risk trade over a four-day trading window? Is it buffer zones like the crisp index people? Reasonable people can disagree about how to do those trades. The guys from DFA would tell you that you know they love having the flexibility to manage around index changes and just ignore them for a couple of days if that's the right thing to do. Reasonable people can have that that discussion, but the idea that somehow there is this available price that no money's really traded at that you could shove the index rebound through is just ridiculous. Okay, so I mean, really, you feel like this is a non-issue, and and I I would say, I mean, I've talked to, for instance, uh, Gerard O'Reilly over at Vanguard managing a trillion dollar fund. They're on top of this, right? They they understand that there's some market impact of getting in and getting out of positions, and they try to minimize that market impact. Uh, when trading. And there's no question there's a, del- a, a delicate balancing act here. But as you just mentioned, I think about the crisp uh, indexes, you go down to the underlying index methodology, they're rebalancing over a five-day period, right, versus doing yep. it all at once. And there's there's different thresholds to try to reduce turnover when you look at the cutoffs around things like uh, small, mid, and large cap stocks. So it, it's not like ETF issuers or index providers are unaware that there can be some impact here. But just to boil down, you're saying that you don't think this is a big issue, a big cost at the end of the day. I I think that this is something that the index industry has been perfecting with scientific accuracy for about 40 years. Uh, And the very best index arbitrators in the world work at large asset managers who run large index books, right? This is an engineering and trading problem that is deeply solved. Um, you know, when when a BlackRock or a Vanguard goes to do a giant rebalance like this, they don't just wait till 359 and put in a market order, <laughs> right? They work this for months ahead of time. These methodologies are known. They are published. And the people, particularly to the people who license them to run money against them. So while it may only get announced, you know, what a, a month or a week or five days ahead of time, what's actually going in at what weights, 
everybody knows the process for inclusion. So everybody's monitoring all of those stocks and working with counterparties so that when the day comes that they need to mark the index as closely as possible with the portfolio, they know how to get that trade off. And remember, that's the end. Of, that's the game for an index provider or for an index issuer, not necessarily to always make the very single best trade, but to track the index. Right. They don't they don't just choose not to own a company because they don't like it. They track the index. OK, I'll give you one more counter and then we'll move on. I know this stuff's pretty inside baseball, but. Is there any case, you mentioned DFA earlier, is there any case to just go active? Like, even if you're following a rules-based strategy, I, I do wonder if some issuers could go active to allow for that trading flexibility. And if you if you think about DFA's entrance into the ETF market, they reference the ETF rule, and they, they spend a lot of time just talking about the fact that they had the flexibility to decide when to trade. And so even though they're taking a systematic approach, they're using the transparent active ETF wrapper uh, to 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 implement that because that active management allows them to decide when to get in and out yeah, of position. I, so I, I guess my should should more issuers consider going that route. And if this wasn't an issue, why would DFA say that? So I think it's a question of what your intention is, right? And so the intention of SPY or IVV or VOO is to perfectly track the printed performance of the S and P five hundred. So. On any period of time, a day, a year, 50 years, you can look at the ETF and say, this thing tracked exactly what S&P Global did. That's, that's perfection for that. That is different than what DFA is doing, where they're, what DFA is doing is saying, look, low cost, low turnover, market exposure is a great way to invest. We think we can add an extra 10, 15, 20 basis points in value by playing around the edges. They're explicitly trading, tracking your for a potential of outperformance around trading. Whether or not they succeed or not depends on each rebalance and each day and each fund. They ha DFA in particular has a pretty good track record of doing this. But my point is, if you're an institution and you're trying to track the index, DFA doesn't do it for you. It's, it's horses for courses. They're actually different objectives. Such an interesting topic. I mean, we could head down all sorts of paths, uh, active, non-transparent wrapper, self-indexing. I'll leave it at that for right now. Let, let me ask you about one other topic as it pertains to indexing, which is last week we saw these massive moves in stocks like Facebook, Amazon, and Snap. Really historic moves market cap-wise. But following those moves, there were a number of, uh, of tweets out there saying, well, see, indexing isn't distorting price discovery, right? Clearly, active participants are in control because indexing can't be responsible if Facebook is down 25% one day and then Amazon is up 20% the next. Right. But, but I've got to tell you, I saw a really interesting counter to that from uh, Simplify's Paul Kim, who I know you know, and he said, well, uh, hold, hold on a minute. The reason we're seeing these big swings is because there are more company shares locked up by passive investors. And so the marginal buying and selling pressure leads to bigger swings in prices. Now, this was in response to a uh, an Eric Balchuna's tweet. And I, I want to hear your take on that. But, but here's my question. Let's assume that that's true, okay, that there's more shares locked up by passive investors. And so there, there's this magnification of price swings. To me, that, doesn't that just mean that active players can set prices faster, right? Like, like there's yes. less float, which means they can take prices where they belong with less effort. What's the problem yes. with that? No, you're exactly 100% right. So um, I, I love this because it's, I feel a little bit like the, the index-hating community is, is sort of having to realize that they don't get to have their cake and eat it, too. Um, 
So, yes, of course, like you reduce this, the whole index versus active thing, reduce it to its absurd extent where every dollar is indexed except for two guys who are on the floor trading to decide what the price of Facebook should be. And if they're the only two marginal buyers and sellers of Facebook, then one of them doesn't want to own it. It trades to zero, right? Because there is no buyer. So, yes, of course, if you reduce the market down to a very, very small handful of price setters and everybody else is a price taker, then you create the opportunity for these sort of momentary, ex, ex, what we would consider excess fall in an individual name based around a news item, which is exactly what we did see with a lot of the earnings this quarter. Now, I actually think that there's a whole other argument here, which is we now have an enormously you know, uh, excited and perhaps slightly undereducated and newly minted retail investors who have been doing a lot of work in single stock derivatives around a lot of these names, right? <laughs> single stock Facebook, single stock Snap, single stock Tesla options, right? Through the roof. That has a huge impact too. And people trade those things with leverage right around earnings. That's what people use those kinds of options for. I, I think that's probably a lot smarter vector to be talking to about the sort of surprise imminent price discovery. That's mostly people managing their derivatives book, not that it's all of a sudden there's only three players left deciding the price of Facebook. Yeah, but I mean, really, the end takeaway here, th this may magnify shorter term moves. And, and even what you're speaking to, if you have retail traders with a bunch of options out there and we can talk gamma squeezes, Longer term, this really doesn't matter, right? I mean, the prices are going to go where the prices are going to go. Just because there may be some bigger swings intraday or intraweek, that's not going to change the game longer term. I mean, is that fair? Well, yeah, and this is also completely expected, right? So, I mean, this is this goes back to Mandelbrot's mis, you know, misbehavior of markets, right? There's a difference between clock time and trade time. When you start running more and more information and more and more capital through the system, you're effectively accelerating time so that when you put an exogenous piece of information like quarterly earnings in, which happens on a 90-day cycle, and you've accelerated clock time, of course you expect the reaction to happen instantaneously instead of over two days like it used to. That's well said. You know, it's funny. Uh, I saw a tweet, again, from Eric Balchunas this morning where, you know, he was saying, look, people have said for years that passive investing or passive investors are the weak hands, the dumb money. And so they're going to spark a market collapse. That was the big worry. And now the, the worry is that, well, they're just holding on to shares and it's exacerbating price swings with the, the remaining yeah. float that's out there. It's like you can't win. But uh, Dave, great stuff as always this week. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. That was ETF Trends, Dave Nottig. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. My next guest is John Bowman, Executive Vice President of the CAIA Association, the CAIA Association, which if you're not familiar with CAIA, that stands for Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst. Uh, this is a professional designation. It's the industry standard for the alternative space. 
And more broadly, John and the Kaya Association offer all sorts of education and thought leadership around alternative investments. I should also note that prior to the Kaya Association, John was managing director for the Americas at the CFA Institute. And then before that, he served as portfolio manager at both Mellon Growth Advisors and State Street Global Advisors. And he's now on the line with me. Uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Uh, thanks for having me. Really a pleasure to be here. So we are going to have what I think will be a very interesting conversation around alternative investments. I feel like this is becoming a much hotter topic now, which we'll, we'll get to. But to begin, I just gave that brief description of the Kaya Association. Anything else you would add here uh, for people who are unfamiliar with the organization? Yeah, I think you did well, Nate. But yeah, maybe, maybe I can uh, flesh out uh, that, that bone a little bit. Uh, so as you said, we're Kai is a professional body for the investment industry with a specific emphasis on alternative assets. And our really our mission, to be clear, is to improve investor outcomes. That's really what most of our advocacy and our, our existence is really all about. Uh, as you said, most of us know us through that educational program, those four valuable letters, the, our high-stakes examination program. That's what we're named after, of course. But we also deliver that mission through thought leadership. We do a lot of long-form pieces, blogs, journal articles, webcasts. And then uh, periodically we do advocacy, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But anything that we believe uh, is in the, in the realm of protecting investors and, and improving the greater good, we're going to be involved with. Uh, we actually just turned 20 uh, as far as an organization, so we've left our gangly youth phase and uh, are into our 20s. And we have about 12,000 individuals in about 100 countries around the world that have gone through the program and are now part of that professional community and members of Kaya. And give me a, a flavor here, the, the Kaya Charter, if I want to go through the process, how long is that going to take? How, how rigorous is it? Just talk a little bit about that. Sure. It's, uh, it's two exams, so and they're progressive, meaning you have to pass level one to get to level two. Level one's uh, kind of foundational. It walks you through the different asset classes, some of which we'll talk about today. So it uh, helps you understand the, the risk and return characteristics and, and the use and value of each of those different flavors of alternatives. And then level two kind of spins uh, that uh, on its axis, and it puts you in the cockpit or the captain's chair of the allocator, the investment professional that's putting together a diversified portfolio and how do all these types of asset classes you studied at level one interact and integrate in order to deliver on a long-term investment outcome? Uh, we, uh, most successful to your point, Nate, most successful candidates tell us that they spend about 200 to 250 hours per level studying. And, uh, and we have a curriculum that we provide that the exam is built off of. So you can finish it in a calendar year. We offer it twice a year. So technically you could Pass level one in March, pass level two uh, in September, and beyond your merry way as a as a actual charter holder. Uh, but many, of course, um, based on lifestyle and, and circumstances, will take longer than that. One thing I'm curious about: I know you visit with people all across the country. How well do you think the wealth management industry is to talk about and potentially offer alternative investments to clients? Like, what are you seeing on the ground when when you visit with people yeah. across the industry? You know, it's such a good question and quite timely, Nate, because historically, I mentioned we're 20 years old. Historically, we have really catered our, our business and our exam, our curriculum was really catered towards serving and improving what I would call the institutional value chain. And as you just alluded to, we're now seeing for a whole lot of reasons the wealth management value chain really come alive with an interest 
uh, and an excitement and a, and a vigor to be pursuing many of these alternative asset classes. And, and so in a word, to answer your question, no is, is unfortunately the answer. And I think if you look at the wealth management value chain, it's, it, there's some overlap, but it is very much a kind of a parallel train track uh, for the institutional value chain that has known and invested and has actually um, been involved and delivered and purveyed products for, for many, many years on the alternative side. But if you look at the kind of traditional retail multi-strategy asset managers that your listeners would be familiar with, right? Fidelity, Vanguard, Franklin Templeton, T. Rowe. It's a small part of their assets under management, alternatives that is, but a much larger part of their profits. And then the intermediaries just flowing from top to bottom in that that kind of chain, Uh, Morgan Stanley, UBS, the private banks, those that actually uh, uh, pass through some of these products, ultimately to the last mile of your local advisor, which is where most of us actually have the client relationship, this is all new, Nate, uh, and the opacity and the complexity makes it something that is not for, uh, you know, someone that has not been properly trained and can understand how this might fit with the investment policy statement and the goals of an individual investor, because as we know, those are all different and much more bespoke than the institutional side. So I think there's a steep learning curve, and Kaya uh, is actually going to be making some strategic announcements because we, we are burdened by this gap, and we want to come alongside of that wealth management value chain and, and building up uh, much more awareness and sophistication. Okay, so I mentioned, obviously, this is becoming a much hotter topic now, and, and you alluded to this increasing pursuit uh, of alternatives by uh, p- people across the, the value chain here, but certainly wealth managers. And I have several paths for us to head down, but I, I wanted to start with this narrative around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about. Of course, the the, the never hundi, uh, never-ending hunt for yield. And y- you look, obviously, investors are concerned about rising rates and inflation. Uh, there's this growing feeling that bonds might be dead weight in a portfolio moving forward. I, I don't know that I fully uh, agree with that, which we can talk about, but there's no question alter becoming a much bigger topic of conversation right now, right, as a potential solution to this uh, fixed-income conundrum. I would just love to get your overall take on this right now. I mean, is this finally the environment for alts to shine after what's been a pretty lackluster decade uh, or, or so? Right, right. I would I would actually stretch that last comment even farther. So first of all, let, let me just validate your comment. I was in Miami last week. Uh, there was a bunch of alternatives conferences that kind of center around January. And that makes sense. In Miami, everyone's anxious and particularly coming out of COVID to kind of learn and and fellowship. And I've never heard in my 25 years in in the business, a a higher chorus and a repetitive uh, kind of heralding of what, what's my new 40 or what's your fixed income replacement. And and everybody's kind of keen on that. And you're right. So I would say, actually, the last four decades, if you think about inflation, the last time we saw this rear its head was in the Carter administration. I mean, it's really shocking. And interest rates last peaked in 1981. Uh, And from there, we've had this huge fixed income bull market. And then, of course, we know the story of the unprecedented level of intervention by the central banks around the world. And so largely, we've been conditioned for 40 years to kind of have almost endless access and free access to cash and capital. And that has provided this tailwind you've just alluded to, where the 60-40 has returned double digits for the last 40 years really amazing. And if you're under 40 years old, you kind of assume that's normal. Like, why bother with anything but 
frankly, U.S. equities. Why even 60-40? Let's do 100-0, right? <laughs> uh, but I, we, Kaya thinks we're returning to a more normal environment where the old beast of diversification, the, the only free lunch in town, as, as it's often deemed, is going to arise from its 40-year hibernation, and asset allocation decisions are going to matter again. And so, yes, we do think that uh, a much wider set of alternatives, lowercase a, uh, is uh, is appropriate for a long-term investor and for their clients. And, and when you speak of the new 40, specifically given the almost lack uh, and elusive nature of yield in traditional public fixed income, uh, we think that places like private debt uh, and infrastructure are going to start to become perhaps a natural source or, or new flavor, if you will, uh, for stable uh, cash flows that are predictable and perhaps uh, less volatilely related to the economic cycle. So, so, John, you mentioned diversification, obviously you just mentioned stable cash flows. When you think about the role of alternatives in a portfolio overall, I mean, does it boil down to those two items? And I, I know there are all sorts of flavors of alternative investments out there, but if yeah. we were to generalize, what, what do you view as the role of alts in a portfolio? Yeah, and I think, you know, without without judging anyone, I think often the, the, the public media and, and, and many of the stakeholders, frankly, and I kind of pointed ourselves, too, as professionals, we do this. We tend to think of the alts as kind of the dessert buffet, right, that after you, you kind of have all the four food groups, um, you kind of walk over to the dessert table, and that's where you get the spicy, high-octane return, right? And I think that's really a destructive disservice to – uh, what investment professionals are meant to do, which is create a set of alternatives, again, lowercase a, that is designed and curated and collected to meet a long-term return. So w- what are alternatives uniquely meant to do? You're right. Um, it, it provides different types of yield, different types of income, certainly some capital preservation. So if you think about certain hedge funds that are meant to protect on the downside, uh, stable cash flows like infrastructure and and private debt. Now, those meet certain factors that are really critical. And then, you know, there's principal growth, right? And we might talk a little bit about crypto or private equity that provide different sources of risk on opportunity for upside. Um, And so I think when you put all of these alternatives and flavors across the full buffet of risk premia, that's where long-term protection and, and uh, wise investing really comes in. And, and the old kind of putting all your eggs in one basket, even though we've seen great returns in public and, and uh, equity and fixed income, is just not the, the, the normal environment that we think is going to uh, you know, be the case over the next decade. Okay, so you mentioned crypto. You cracked open the door to crypto there, which means I I'm going to barge through. Longtime listeners of the podcast will we'll be laughing <laughs> right now. But, you, you know, look, this has been billed by many as an alternative asset, right? Uh, now, I, I think there's a lot of debate here. I think you could definitely say something like Bitcoin has looked much more like a, a, a pure risk asset recently. But certainly yeah. you can see the longer term case for it being digital gold or something like that. I, I'm very curious to hear, how, how does Zakaya associate? Association view crypto right now? Yeah, well, I'm kind of a broken record, but let me just uh, emphasize one thing on alternative. In the greatest of ironies, the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Association has been in the business for 20 years is trying to take the alt out of alternative. So let me just say that first. Like, this is about all the opportunities at stake, all the alternatives. And crypto is obviously, Nate, one of those. And it's something that's garnering a lot of interest and could provide, uh, does provide, and could provide. 
uh, opportunity uh, for diversification. We, we think you have to start with an existential question here, and you just alluded to it. W- what actually is this? What's the, uh, there's an identity crisis with crypto, depending on who you talk to, right? Is this a store of value, the old digital gold? Is it, is it, is it, uh, is it an inflation hedge, right, long term? Or is it a risk on asset, like you said, 230% growth in the last decade, wild volatility, we're in our fourth drawdown? Uh, or thirdly, is the digital currency, Bitcoin or any of the others, is it simply representative? Is it the first kind of killer app, if you will, of a new ecosystem of transacting and doing business? And that's where you hear about Web 3.0, DeFi, blockchain technology, cryptography generally that's going to be transformative in the way that every industry uh, operates, just as Internet 2.0 was. And I think Jenny Johnson, who's, a, who's the CEO of, of Franklin Templeton, said it well. Sometimes, and I agree with this, Bitcoin can sometimes be the biggest distraction to the real opportunity here, which is really the opportunity for blockchain efficiency throughout. So back to your question. I think that there is tremendous opportunity in this space, but I think uh, Jason Zweig wrote in the journal over the weekend, um, there, there is a certain level of indigestion that the, the volatility swings can create. And I think uh, advisors and allocators, depending on what your clients are, need to be abundantly sure uh, the, the need for liquidity and the long-term risk opportunity in, in this space. So I tend to take more of a what many professionals have called the picks and shovels or the trellis or the infrastructure approach, which is spreading your exposure to this transformative uh, technology across many of the plays that are going to benefit broadly. So whether it's the exchanges or some of these wallet businesses, the blockchain technology, rather than betting on the Betamax or the VHS, dating myself a little bit, let's bet on the infrastructure that's going to ultimately benefit regardless of what the killer app is that ultimately wins the game. I think all of that's well said. I'll just add, obviously, it's just so early in the space. Oh, and is. I think there's a lot of uh, question marks around how, how do you value some of this stuff? Clearly, there that's are still right. some regulatory uh, concerns and in, in, in the compliance infrastructure. So it's just so early in the in the space. But let me ask you this. You mentioned Web3 and, and DeFi. I think that's a fascinating area. What about the uh, the tokenization of assets? So let's mm-hmm. say we put the quote-unquote pure crypto aside for a moment, what about that underlying technology? I I mean, you think about this, we're already seeing um, things like NFTs. I I think about digital art with music rights and and, and royalties. I think those could be viewed as alternative assets. I mean, do you see tokenization as a path to open up exposure to alts? I do. I I absolutely do, Nate. And this is exactly my point. I I think sometimes we can get lost in the hottest coin and miss the, the, the forest through the trees. And so you think about Bored Apes, CryptoPunks, the, the Beeple painting, 69 million you just, you just uh, alluded to. These, I think, are fun lifestyle cultural hints and peaks into what I think is going to become a huge tokenized economy. Uh, and the world is going private quicker and quicker. And so if tokenization, the underlying blockchain technology, can give us fractional ownership, you know, a, a claim, a small claim, a part claim to some of these off-chain assets. So what do I mean by that? You could have fractional ownership of something as simple as a stock certificate. So instead of waiting three days for the kind of current uh, structure to kind of settle your trades through multiple intermediaries and eventually your counterparty, as with, uh, as with uh, B- Bitcoin, for example, it's immediate. 
and it's 24 hours. And you could extend this application to even more interesting things. So what if the, the tokenization and the blockchain technology allowed you to have a small, as a retail investor, a small ownership of a venture capital fund? Uh, or a very real example, uh, Nate, was that recently there's a, a hotel in Mayfair. I used to live in London, so this was just down the street, a very luxury hotel in London that sold 49% of their hotel through tokenization to retail investors, meaning you and I could actually own a small piece of this property in Mayfair. So imagine the opportunities to provide the retail investor that has previously been inaccessible, only available to the most highest wealthy and those that have access kind of to the right general, uh, general partners and investment managers. What if everyone had access to some of these different types of asset classes that really could strengthen the long-term all-weather nature of a portfolio. So I'm, I'm really bullish on the technological opportunity of the underlying tokenization capability. John, only a few minutes left here, but th this heads down a really interesting path, I think, because whether we're talking about the tokenization of assets or I think we could even take a, a step back and talk ETFs, which uh, I believe have helped democratize investing. I've talked a lot on this podcast about how ETFs have, have opened up asset classes and strategies that simply weren't available to the general investing public previously. I'm assuming you agree with that, but um, I, I, I think I know where you stand on this. Do you ultimately view all this as a good thing? Because I do think one of the narratives around alternatives is that uh, they, they have been somewhat gated, right? Typically only available to wealthy investors, uh, accredited investors. But there's also this thought that they're, they're very complex and maybe the, the retail investing public doesn't fully understand them. And so they should not be in a portfolio. I'm just I, I'm curious, do you yeah, think it's yeah. good to open up these asset classes to everyone, whether it's through ETFs or tokenization? Yeah, so I, I think that's such a good question, and, and in in, uh, in typical maybe politician fashion, I'm going to hedge it and say yes and no. So why do I think democratization or new access is, is good uh, and overwhelming? Uh, yes, is that it is no longer socially or politically viable for for large portions of the population Nate, to be shut out of increasingly large portions of the global economy. So I, I alluded to it earlier. More and more of the global economy, particularly the new economy, the more innovative technologies and business models, are staying private longer. So you simply can't get access to this. Warby Parker, just as an example, it had, it had uh, six rounds of private fundraising before it went public. So most of that enterprise value was created outside of where retail investors could even touch it. So w I think clearly it's important for the, the long-term health of the retirement proposition and the capital markets to give much more access. Now, why do I say, but wait a second? Not, not everyone is uh, a sophisticated investor. And like you alluded to, I, I'm all for financial literacy and getting more young folks exposed to the power of compounding and saving. And I respect this democratic populace. We were all born investors. But it's simply not true. And I think sometimes that can be a disservice that everybody can jump in and uh, you know, anybody can buy this or that. And I think we've got to be really careful. So that's why intermediaries and professional investors like advisors, your particular investment advisors, I'm talking to your listeners now, it behooves you to work with someone that's been properly trained and ethically grounded. And I think that model is, will need to sustain itself if we're to protect the underlying uh, retirement goals of individuals. So I, I, again, it's a bit of a hedge. But yes and no, depending on which side of the coin of democratization you're talking about.
All right, just about a minute left. I'm going to press you a little bit further on this topic, which is, do you have any strong views on the accredited investor rules that are out there? Does the CHI Association have any strong views? You know, should someone be able to access certain alternatives simply because they have more income or net worth? Is that is that a fair way to approach things? Yeah, I think I partly answered that in the last one, but very explicitly, yes. We, we wrote an open letter uh, when Clayton uh, was in the in the chair, and we actually – we, we wrote to Gensler as well, reiterating this. We think that uh, that the existing accredited investor machinery, Nate, that is largely a function of wealth, uh, income, it, that that binary approach is outdated and not no longer appropriate or or uh, rightly diagnosed. And we think moving and they've hinted at this under the Clayton uh, administration. They've hinted that they would move possibly to an education-based system where if you show yourself to be uh, trained properly, aware properly of the risk uh, that you would be able to access that. And so we would, we, there's obviously much more detail to this, but we would be big proponents of changing that access and that gate to one of awareness versus simply how much money you have. We don't think that applies any longer, given all we've talked about over the last 20 minutes. 100% comes back to uh, education. Well, John, I've got to tell you so many fascinating topics here. I think you and I could probably uh, discuss this stuff for several hours. Trying to squeeze it into 15 or 20 minutes is a, <laughs> is a challenge, but excellent discussion. Uh, re- really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining me this week. Nate, thanks so much for having me on. That was John Bowman, Executive Vice President of the Kaya Association. Valkyrie Funds invites investors to enter the digital asset economy with the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, available to purchase through NASDAQ ticker BTF. Consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information is in the prospectus at www.valkyrie-funds.com BTF. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Investing involves risk and potential loss of capital. Distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. I'm now joined by Robert Cantwell, founder of Upholdings. He's behind the Compound Kings ETF, ticker symbol KNGS. Great ticker, Kings. This was the first hedge fund to ETF conversion. That took place in December 2020. And actually, that conversion happened prior to the first mutual fund to ETF conversions, which, of course, made a lot of headlines last year. They're still making headlines. Uh, Robert's now on the line with me from Nashville, Robert, thank you for joining me. Nate, great to uh, speak with you again. All right, so let's do this. Let's start with the ETF itself, and then I do want to come back and get into the uh, hedge fund conversion process and, and certainly your background. But Kings, this is an actively managed ETF, uh, highly concentrated, only about 25 holdings. Take us from there. What's the underlying investment strategy? Sure. Uh, at, at the simplest level, Kings is, the, the first ETF that's exclusively focused on owning compounders. Uh, compounders are companies that seek to drive up their share prices either through reinvesting in their business, making accretive acquisitions, or buying back shares opportunistically. And what we do differently here is we position stocks in the ETF on a risk-reward basis, which is unlike most indices available today. Uh, and so ultimately, it works as a great complement to a lot of market-cap-weighted portfolios that are out there. And the last thing we do is 
we take a, an active approach to managing risk. So when stocks fall below our estimates of intrinsic value, we're buying more. Or if stocks run too far, we're able to use the mechanisms inside the ETF to redeem shares and not have to send taxable gains to uh, our investors. As I look at the composition of the holdings in this portfolio, uh, from my standpoint, this this absolutely veers towards growth stocks. Now, we can talk about what the different buckets are. Is, is that a fair characterization? Is this more a growth-oriented portfolio? Well, uh, I'll tell you how we find uh, the, the stocks that we do. Um, and compound things are most often found in growing industries mm-hmm. uh, where there's relatively limited competition. Uh, so we always start at the industry level, and today the industries that we like best are digital advertising, software, and payments. And after we find the right industries, then we really drill down on the business model. Uh, and an example there, targeted advertising has been one of the greatest business models of the last 10 years and likely has tremendous growth ahead of it in the following 10 years. And getting to own meta platforms today at less than 20 times free cash flow is a pretty rare opportunity for investors. So whether you classify that as a, as a growth investment because they're you know, going to generate more cash flow in the future or a value investment because the multiple is so darn attractive, we don't really care. We just think it's going to be a great stock to own that's going to beat the pants off the S&P 500. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, if we look at the current market environment, just more broadly, obviously growth stocks have come under pressure recently. And you look at some of the highest beta, uh, highest growth companies, they've been absolutely bludgeoned over the past six to nine months, right? Categories like unprofitable tech companies. I'm just curious from from your perspective and with the strategy that you run, I mean, how challenging are you finding the environment right now? So you just mentioned a good example of Facebook presenting an opportunity. We can certainly talk about that. But just as a whole, you know, my sense is it's been a challenging environment for for more growth oriented strategies. How are you viewing this? Yeah, I'd I'd love to get into this. So we we've been managing this fund since since 2019. And we've had to deal with uh, the the early onset of the pandemic, the reopening uh, and now the inflation and um, uh, and the hangovers that we're having to deal with from things that we did uh, during the pandemic. And since the fund went public, which, as you mentioned, at the end of 2020, it has been a, a challenging um, period for investors that are focused on businesses uh, and the cash flow they're going to generate in the future. And so the way we the way we have to approach a lot of this is there's media headlines and there's company fundamentals and media headlines are almost always negative. And company fundamentals are sometimes negative and sometimes positive. And when you get into a situation where uh, company fundamentals are reporting negative numbers out there, that only seeks to amplify the negative media headlines that are out there. So, for example, right now you've got the Fed raising rates by 1%. That's not going to really have a meaningful impact on our economy or on companies' balance sheets. Um, However, um, what is happening at the company fundamental level is the first in the second quarter of 2021 were the strongest growth quarters. Frankly, I was born in 1983, second quarter of 2021, strongest growth quarter recorded in the United States of America. And the challenge that a lot of these companies are having to deal with right now is they're having to show how much they're able to grow over the first half of last year, which was the strongest first half of growth in in the modern history of America. Uh, And that has resulted in a ton of dislocation in share prices. And there's companies that were, weren't running very profitable enterprises. There's companies that were growing profits as they were growing. And so you're seeing this very rapid adjustment 
taking place right now of multiples uh, across a number of these businesses that last year had really high growth rates that are coming back down. Um, so happy to talk about where we think this is where this is going forward. Uh, but that these are some of the underlying drivers that have caused a lot of the recent volatility. Well, on this topic of uh, rapid price moves and dislocations, you know, it's interesting. So we, we mentioned Facebook or Meta. That's your top holding in the ETF, 13% weighting last time I checked. But your third largest holding is Amazon, uh, about 8%. And, of course, you look at the action last week, you had Facebook down substantially, biggest market cap loss in history. But then you had Amazon up substantially, biggest market cap gain in, in history. What, what, what did you make of those moves last week? And uh, does that say anything to you more broadly about what's going on in the market? Well, uh, both moves probably moved too far uh, in each of their respective directions. Um, but they neither moved so far as to for us to consider changing, you know, um, whether or not we're going to continue to own these securities. Amazon you own because it's it's continuing to transition from a retail company into an enterprise software business. And as we've seen with other companies, the multiple on Amazon likely will continue to improve as AWS grows now from not 50% to 60% to potentially more than 80% of Amazon's cash flow generation going forward. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, Facebook is different, where every four or five years, Facebook has to work through a, a media format transition. So first they went from desktop to mobile. Then inside of mobile, they've gone from photos to videos. And we're now in this stage of going from videos to short-form videos and then possibly this other metaverse thing that they're talking about. So Facebook, is this has happened in multiple times in their history. Uh, where investors get spooked because they're afraid that all these legacy assets that Facebook have are going to be less valuable going forward in the future. And the last thing I'll, I'll say is that COVID, because there was this, this these trading activities of COVID would determine winners and losers, uh, I believe that has trained a lot of investors to think that outcomes for companies are much more binary than they actually are. And we're just trying to remain focused on really high-quality businesses that are absolutely still going to be chugging out profits five to ten years down the road. And when we're buying you know, share prices, we're buying them off of the values that we think these companies are going to have five to seven years from now, not off of the cash they've generated in the last 12 months. Even though that's the case, you mentioned earlier looking forward, and obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but do you see more opportunity now, or do you think there could be more pain on the horizon? Obviously, we have this wild card of the Fed out there. What do you see as maybe some key drivers moving forward in the in, in the stock space? Well, anytime prices are going down, that, that means opportunity. That then We're investing, I mean, all of my personal liquidity is invested in this fund because I think an ETF is the best place in the world for me to get to manage through a concentrated basket of securities. I don't own any fixed income products. I think anyone that has a 10-year-plus investment horizon is, is screwed if they're trying to buy products that are going to give them income today uh, because of how high inflation is. Um, so investors with, with that type of time horizon, frankly, are forced to find these businesses that are going to be able to penetrate their industries and generate a lot more cash than they're doing today. So you ask, where are the opportunities that we're seeing in the growth side? Um, there's a handful. So if you look across our portfolio, you'll see we're generally positioned into a handful of stalwarts. Uh, Visa and MasterCard are still trading at pretty attractive valuations um, because they were disrupted from a lot of cross-border travel um, during the pandemic. Uh, there are other emerging growth companies like an Adyen that's based in the Netherlands that will process more than a trillion dollars of payments next year. Most Americans don't know it. It doesn't exist in a lot of uh, index funds, uh, and it's a great you know stock to own for, for quite a long time. And then the third piece of it is I do think being allocated into the tech majors is critical. 
you know, as, as you, as you pointed out, Google and Amazon had, had banger quarters, you know, Facebook had a bad one. Uh, another quarter from now or another two quarters from now, it's, there's always going to be a horse race between, between the few of them over who's doing well and who's doing not. But without question, they just have so much market share of the industries in which they're operating. I think it's a mistake not to be pretty heavy, heavily allocated into them. Robert, just a few minutes left. You mentioned uh, the, the ETF being the best place to manage your investment strategy. Obviously, King's was previously a hedge fund. Just briefly, what's the backstory here? Why did you start a hedge fund to begin with? And then what made you decide to convert to an ETF? So a hedge fund is uh, its absolutely the easiest vehicle to start with. Uh, the challenge with it is there's a lot of limitations over who can actually invest with you. And you and John were, were covering this really well, which is why should only people that are already rich get to invest with a, a, an active manager? Uh, that seems like a pretty silly proposition. So, uh, you know, I had friends, there was the 80 pages of documents that had to be signed in order for, for friends and colleagues to invest with me. Uh, there was the complete lack of tax efficiency of running a private fund and moving between securities. And I didn't want to be sending taxable gains down to investors. Um, and then the, the third piece of it, frankly, which I like the most, is that there's now just a four-letter ticker uh, out there. And, you know, I think the SEC and FINRA do a really good job here of leveling the playing field of all 40 Act regulated funds because you can know everything about us that you might need to know in order to make the decision to invest with us. And you can compare us against any and all, you know, other investment alternative products that are out there, you know, in the forum. And so, frankly, I, I think it's the fairest um, way to um, to offer a platform to investors. And that's um, that's a big reason why we made the switch that we did. Is there anything that you can't do in the ETF wrapper that you were doing in the hedge fund previously? Um, I will say it's, it is a if, if we want to start shorting a lot of securities again, which mm -hmm. we definitely don't want to do at this level, it's not the same. It's not as easy. You don't have quite that flexibility. But to the extent that you're focused on being a long-only biased uh, strategy and if the securities that you're owning you're intending to own for long periods of time and not day trade, then the ETF is a phenomenal vehicle for that. And just out of curiosity, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, did your fee structure change substantially? I know you're charging 60 basis points now for the ETF. Is that a big uh, difference from what you were charging in the hedge fund? We've always charged 60 basis points. I never understood why hedge fund investors get away with 1% or 2%, 20 Our, if, we, if every investor has a very simple goal of maximizing returns, or maximizing compounded returns, the fee is the first thing that eats into that. And mm -hmm. we want to post, you know, great results to our investors and don't want our fee to get in the way of that. Just looking bigger picture, are you expecting more hedge funds to go the route that you did? I, I just wonder how many hedge funds, to your point on fees, are going to be willing to go to a less lucrative fee structure. And, you know, there are some other considerations here, such as the fact that you can't close an ETF to new money. I, I talked about that earlier on the podcast today. But what, what, what do you think happens here longer term? More conversions or, or no? Uh, I don't know that you're going to see more conversions, but you are going to see a continuing expanding diversity of issuers. And that means that there are folks that are managing money in hedge funds. And rather than converting, they're probably going to keep their hedge fund to keep the income stream that's generating. But then they're likely to launch an ETF product alongside of it uh, that does something similar or strips out. So a ton of hedge funds have a long, short or and a long strategy um, just as a way of generating more fees. And you could start to see some that run along short in a private fund and then run along only, you know, through an ETF to get themselves more exposure. Uh, I think you're going to start to see more 
uh, iterations come out as opposed to straight-up conversions uh, like we did. Well, Robert, we'll have to leave it there. Fun chat this week. I really enjoyed this. Certainly wish you the best of luck with Kings. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, Thanks, Nate. See you. That was Robert Cantwell, founder of Upholdings. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares ETFs, you can visit iShares.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Grayscale's Dave Laval. We'll discuss their brand new Future of Finance ETF. We're also going to talk about GBTC's discount. And yes, we will talk spot Bitcoin ETF. And then Astoria's John Davi will spotlight the recently launched Axis Astoria Inflation Sensitive ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.